0: Hey, everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. Gail, thank you so much for joining Chicago Capital. It's a pleasure to have a Booth and Notre Dame alum on the show. So, thank you so much.
1: Of course.
0: I have to always start the show and go Irish first off, right (laughs) off the bat.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: But I'd love it if you could sort of first start off by telling us about your background, you know, how you ended up at Vitalize and how you started Vitalize. You you have a very interesting background, I personally think. You know, you spent time at Irish Angels. So we'd love to hear about your path to Vitalize and where you are today.
1: Sure. Um, After undergrad, I worked at a couple of corporate jobs. So first was at Nielsen doing consumer research for new packaged goods. And then I worked at the at Orbitz, um, the travel company, and their strategy team. And I, I could tell, you know, I wanted to do something smaller. So I started a business on the side while I was at Orbitz that ultimately failed, went back to business school, started another business while I was there that did not make it either. And then after business school, I had the opportunity to start Irish Angels. Um, so that was in 2012. And just learned the venture industry. But it was really cool. I remember the day that I met some of our founding board members, and they said, Can you do this? We were looking for an operator to figure out how to start the group. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's starting a business to help others start businesses. So I kind of got into venture because I was more on the operator side than on the venture capital side. Um, And then we had so much interest that we wanted to sort of fund in 2017, and then began investing out of that in 2018.
0: So first off, I feel like Nielsen right out of Notre Dame is just a classic path right there. So <laughs> I to, that's a, I think that's tried and true method to uh, to career greatness. But I, I'm I'm curious about the startups that you ultimately sort of wound down. When did you realize it was time to sort of move on? I know that's a kind of agonizing decision that a lot of founders go through. So, how did you sort of arrive at those decisions over the years?
1: The first one I worked on for three years on the side. And by the end, I was starting to get some traction in terms of people coming to consume content. But I didn't have a revenue model that worked at the time. And I wanted to explore other things in business school. You know, I learned a lot from that experience and wanted to figure out what what is more of a passion of mine than that first business. And the second business I was very passionate about, it was connecting students with startups, but it just wasn't a scenario that was going to work in terms of team dynamics. So that was an easy, you know, one where I could tell that it was time to move on. But both of those experiences in their rear view mirror are very positive in terms of learning a lot about myself and how to start businesses and what works and what doesn't.
0: Is there any sort of general advice you would give founders who are facing the same decision or that you've given over the years, just especially because you've gone through that experience yourself?
1: I would say as long as you really still love what you're doing to give it three years. In terms of my friends that have found success or had to shut their business down, it really takes three years to know. I would just suggest if you've given it three years and you still love it and you haven't made it, you you know, you know might have an issue with your business model or the market or something is off that it's just not going to work. But if you haven't given it three years and you still love it and you're like, why isn't this happening? Give it a little bit more time.
0: Totally. I think that makes complete sense. And did those experiences you know, so much of VC is going through and saying no or finding reasons to pass on investments. You know, you see thousands of companies a year and you only might invest in, you know, six to 10. Did those experiences and really living out those startups that ultimately you had to shutter, did that give you a different perspective on, you know, red flags to look for immediately in either business models or go-to-market strategies? Did those kind of inform to this day your sort of viewpoint as a VC?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely look for what is your revenue model? How much are you gonna charge? How do you acquire customers? That's really critical. And the other piece is just cap table issues. It's a huge error that founders make in terms of giving equity to, whether it's a co-founder or an early employee that or an advisor that doesn't stay with the company. And now you have what I call dead equity on the books. Um, so those experiences that I went through definitely helped me um, to evaluate the companies.
0: And. You know, you moved on to Irish angels. And, you know, I think a question that I would love to ask that I haven't really had the opportunity to really ask anybody else on the show. Could you talk to us about some of the nuances and the differences between, you know, investing out of an angel syndicate and investing out of, you know, a motivate a venture capital fund?
1: Yep. So an angel group or an angel syndicate allows an individual investor to be active because they're going to pick which deals they want to invest in whereas an investor in a vc fund is investing in a pool of capital that's the limited partnership and then the general partner makes decisions on behalf of those lps out of the pool of capital so if you if you want to learn the business or at least learn how to analyze companies and then make your own decisions you should do angel group or syndicate if you want to be more passive The fund model is the right one. And then some folks that I know do a little bit of both.
0: Got it. So we'd love, I think, to learn a little bit more about Vitalize. You know, what was sort of the thesis and the motivation for starting it and really how has it developed over the years?
1: Sure. So it was initially started as a generalist B2B software fund investing at the early stage. And then over time, what we've learned is that um, we really want to be more focused And when you map our Fund 1 portfolio companies, most of them are future of work and future of learning. Fund 2, therefore, has just the focus of future of work and future of learning to be more specific. And what that does is allows founders to find us more easily and also co-investors who do these types of deals at the early stage as well.
0: And. I'm curious about you know maybe your background or what led to this sort of focus on the future of work and future of education. You know, why did you choose those two vectors for this particular you know fund?
1: Yeah. well, first, I'll talk about you know the business side and then and secondly, the personal side of why why we made this decision. So from a business perspective, future of work, I think you've started to see the ramp in the last year of the of the very innovative changes that we have coming. And I don't see this slowing down anytime soon. We're in the, in the very early stages of a massive transformation of how we work. Um, and so this is gonna be a really exciting space for quite a long time. And then on the future of learning side, we're just now starting to see some movement here. Historically, tech has had sort of a bad rap with VCs. There haven't been a lot of EdTech companies that have made VCs a lot of money. And so we're, the, the reason for that is sales cycles have historically been long and the sales process very difficult to sell into both k to 12 and higher ed well those that's changing now because it has to these schools realize hey i've, I've got to do this there's more federal funding going into um, especially in the k-12 side so this is an area where we're just on the cusp and about to see some really cool stuff so there's business reasons in terms of macro trends that support why these are interesting areas And then on the personal side, I just think it's fun. Any VC needs to do what they like. Um, And so for me personally, you know, there are a few companies in our, in our fund one portfolio that are a little bit more FinTech or a little bit more retail tech. And I do, I love those businesses, but they both have, or they all have elements of future of work as well. And that's really the common bond along with future of learning that connects everything. And it's what my team and I get personally excited about. So we have to have those two things, the business reason and the personal reasons.
0: Were there any categories that you guys had to dispense of when you were sort of narrowing your focus? And if so, what were they?
1: Yeah, it was the fintech and retail tech we could have gone with. At first, we were going to be all four, but that's pretty broad still. And future of work and future of learning, there's so much overlap because a lot of future of work deals with learning that made more sense for us, we really, really want to focus. And that's going to allow us to generate content, build community, do marketing, to generate inbound deal flow, as well as make it easier for people to find us. And we can build that expertise in just a specific area versus having to do too many things at once.
0: So are you guys looking for, you know, marketplace, if for, I guess I'd focus on the ed tech side first. Are you looking for marketplaces? Are you looking for vertical SaaS in the space? You know, what type of models or mental models are you using to kind of analyze, you know, that particular vertical?
1: It's really more about how big the market is, how big the opportunity is, the team, and then is there some form of data that is proprietary to the company that will create a moat? And it makes it really hard for other competitors to do this. So if a company is too small, um, it's niche, it's a feature, we're going to pass on it. It has to be a platform. It has to be a big idea. It has to be something that can, you know, um, over time, like really generate that barrier to entry through the data that it's bringing into the systems from day one. So we'll ask founders about that up front. And if I don't get a good answer on how are you thinking about data, we will pass.
0: Is there kind of a market size or, or a market opportunity, you know, a minimum that that you have? I, I saw a tweet yesterday, you talked about seeing a market that was too small and kind of giving advice to the founder to pivot sort of their future fundraising strategy. In your mind, do you kind of have a specific number or minimum that they have to sort of be going after?
1: We like at least a billion, if not $2 billion market. Some VCs are looking for five or 10 so when you're in the millions, if you're still 100 hundred, two hundred, $200, $300 million market, you know, that's considered niche in the VC world.
0: Yeah. And you, you talked a little bit about founders pitching and having an understanding of what they're going to do with the data. But are there any other, you know, red flags or green flags, any other attributes you look for in founders in those initial pitch meetings?
1: Sure. Well, one is founder market fit. Are they passionate about it? Do they care? So it goes back to why do we pick the areas we want to invest in? The founder has to really love what they're doing because it's, it's, it's tough. Raising raising money and figuring out how to do operations. And it's a, it's a long slog. So they have to love it. And then I look for, remember, we invest at the very early stage. So oftentimes, there's not a lot of revenue, which is what later stage VCs are looking for. They're looking to see as your revenue growing, you know, are you getting more Uh, more engagement within your existing customers? Is your churn low? Like They're looking at specific metrics and we don't have that. So instead, what what we look for is, when the founders answer questions and tell us about what they're gonna do in the future, how specific is it? Where are they getting the data from that? Have they talked to other founders? Have they done their research? Have they talked to customers? Um, What are they basing their assumptions on? And I've learned over time that the more specific they are and the more data that they're able to leverage to make those decisions, the better and you know they're they're organized they're willing to say they don't know something they're basically just pe- people that when you listen to them talk you're like i can see you doing this i want to invest in their vision and make sure that you know i believe that they are the founder that's going to be able to bring the team together and actually execute on this vision um so i'm listening for lots of clues during those first couple of conversations
0: after those first couple of conversations take place a benefit that I would almost see, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would imagine being so focused means that you just have great industry contacts. You have great access to subject matter experts, whether it's K-12 through 12 education, higher education, et cetera. So I guess, is that a benefit that you, am, am I right in thinking that, that that is a, a strategic benefit to being so focused that after you have mm-hmm. these initial conversations with founders, you can go and vet this idea with tr- trusted industry contacts?
1: Absolutely. Yep. And we we do that every time that we can every now and again you run into a model that's so out there that it's kind of hard to vet but um, we do the best that we can with industry contracts that we have and we try to talk to prospective customers hey you know they're selling into high school principals here's five or six high school principals that we know what do you guys think
0: yeah and i I think too another criteria that you have is pre-money valuations that are less than twelve million. I have to ask, in the current environment, has that been inching up over the years? Are you feeling pressure to push that a little bit higher as the as the months wear on? How are you guys thinking about that that minimum or that we've maximum? Done a,
1: we've done a couple of deals over that, um, but the I think at the average pre-money, if you were to look at our data, is probably like nine, eight or nine million dollars. So we're relatively early.
0: And geographic agnostic. So you'll be, will you look across North America or do you have any areas that you really try and focus on or stay away from?
1: Fund one is U.S. only. Um, in the future, we may look to Canada as a next step. Um, and then, you know, it really just depends on how the fund evolves from there.
0: Got it. I think another sort of Topic you talk about, and I think we've touched about touched this a little bit, but I, I'd love to unpack this because, again, at the stage you guys are, I think you have such interesting insight to this. You talk about looking for startups that have that strong growth potential. You maybe mentioned a few, but just looking to understand a little bit more about for you, what are those indica- indicators? Aside from sort of the founders' competence, what are the indicators when you view these startups in future of worker ed tech that show that there is a strong growth potential here?
1: Well, there's there's two different types of businesses. So one is where they have early revenues. And you know, I, I would guess if we looked at our data that the average revenue when a company comes in is half a million dollars of annual revenue. And so for those companies, what we want to see is strong month over month or quarter over quarter growth to get to that point. In fact, oftentimes they wouldn't have been generating revenue for very long at all. So we we look at that to see do we believe they can continue to accelerate here? Oftentimes we don't have that. And so in those cases, we're talking with customers to listen for, is this a, um, a painkiller or is it vitamin? And if it's just a nice to have, it's probably not gonna fly off the shelves. What will happen is that early adopters or folks that really like to try stuff will try very rapidly. Um, but then you can't really cross the chasm and get into where you start to ramp, ramp the business. So that does not have strong growth potential. So it's really important for us to understand upfront it is this truly a painkiller. We have to understand is the product good, what's the competition look like, will prospective customers buy this and we're making a bet on that set of data that we're gathering in our due diligence process that this will have strong growth potential.
0: Yeah, that's a mental model we actually we love to use as well. And so I'm I'm so happy you said that cuz I think it's it's such a great heuristic and I think for you, you know, for us what we try to do is really validate it through again those subject matter expert calls, but is that sort of the same method you guys use is, is just validating with many, as many contexts as you possibly can? And then how do you view sort of the suspension of disbelief, you know, where maybe you're getting conflicting kind of feedback and and you really can't see the clear picture, but you have just a strong belief in the founder? I'm sorry, I know that's sort of a two-part question, but I'd just love to hear a little bit more about how you unpack that question of vitamin and painkiller.
1: Well, at the end of the day, it's do you believe in the founder? And so I've I've invested in... Probably eighty-five or ninety founders to date across Irish Angels and and now Vitalize. So I've I've made some right decisions and then I've made some decisions that you know in in hindsight weren't great. And when you it's it's fascinating when you have that larger sample size, you can start to figure out what worked and what didn't work. And so when we think about founders, you know there are there are things that I can gather today, like for example, the lack of specificity around how you're going to achieve this. We will pass. If a founder, I've, I've had a number of cases where a founder is really product focused and so all they want to do is ship product, but they don't understand sales. And so I'll ask a lot of questions now around sales. Tell me about, um, and it should be founder-led sales at the beginning. How do you develop pipeline? How do you move the customer through the sales funnel? How do you get to conversion? How long does that take? How are you going to build your sales team? Who's going to be your first hire? How do you think about upselling your existing customers, like to, to see how a founder answers all those questions up front is really going to help me to figure out how they think about the business and are, is it a good idea to make a bet on them or not?
0: Do you ever have situations where they can't answer the, these types of questions, but but maybe three, six months, they come back? Do you ever revisit these investments and, and people prove your initial thesis wrong? Or, or I guess how, what's your philosophy on kind of revisiting investments after you've already kind of made your initial assessment and decision?
1: I'm trying to remember if we have had that happen. Um, actually, it, it's not as specific as that, as we said, it was, there was something amiss, right? If if I believe a founder just isn't gathering data or doesn't have a clear path to, to figure things out, it's unlikely that they're going to come back with a path next time. But there have been times where you have to remember we see so many companies as VCs and uh, there are a lot of good companies we pass on. And oftentimes at the early stage, it's like, okay, can you just get a little bit more traction? I know that especially on Twitter, we talk about this all the time. It's not it's not a fun thing to hear as founder. But I have had one of our best performing companies came back to us about six months after I first said no. And we would luckily invested them the second time at the seed stage. Um, and they are a rocket ship. So I will definitely take another look at a company um, if they if if they reach back out, and then there are some that I will reach back out to as well.
0: So kind of strong convictions, but maybe loosely held—that old adage right there.
1: Yeah, I mean, once again, it's, I like the company, but we have limited resources, so I can't invest in everything. Is is really that's that's the hardest part about being a venture capitalist.
0: I think because you guys have an industry focus, I I would almost imagine that. In EdTech, for example, is domain expertise a must-have or a nice-to-have ha- nice when you are looking at these startups? Do you prefer to see a founder who has deep domain expertise in whatever vertical within EdTech they are you know, trying to build a business in?
1: I think it's helpful. I, I won't say in every case it needs to happen, but in most cases, yes. You have to have just familiarity with the players. What's happening today? Who are the buyers? who um, are the gatekeepers? How does this work? So most of what I see in ed tech, it is educators, it's former administrators, or it's it's folks who have grown up in more mature ed tech companies like a Chegg, for example.
0: I I had another question. Yeah. So we talked about ed tech expertise. And this could be a dumb question. But future of work, everybody most people i'm assuming who come to pitch vitalize work they've had a job they've worked in a corporation so doesn't that kind of make everybody a domain expertise who are pitching future of work startups
1: yeah i mean if you have direct experience whether as an individual user of or in a business setting with the problem that you're trying to solve i think either one's helpful and and what i will say is I definitely prefer founders who have some kind of entrepreneurial experience. You don't have to have started your own business before, but have you started an initiative, a project, a board at at school or in the nonprofit world? Like, have you done something which shows that you can get something off the ground? Like, there's probably another pattern in the companies we've invested in where, you know, not everybody who comes from big companies is successful. And there, that's some can be very successful, but if they don't have that proven track record of doing something entrepreneurial, um, I will oftentimes pass on that company.
0: I think that makes total sense. That's a really interesting heuristic too. Basically, you know, you're not saying you have to be a serial successful or unsuccessful founder, but but you have to have inklings, I guess, of the entrepreneurial bug.
1: Right. There's no resources. It's very lonely as a CEO of a startup. It's very hard. I, you know, it's peaks and valleys and there are way more valleys than there are peaks at at least at first. So you have to be mentally tough. You have to have a ton of grit, perseverance, you have to be super resourceful and a problem solver. And you have to be willing just to know that like, it's just not going to be fun sometimes. And so for those reasons, not everybody is meant to start a company.
0: So because you have the experiences of doing both, I have to ask you know starting a company from scratch or getting a venture fund off the ground or any kind of investment vehicle off the ground, what was more challenging?
1: Well, you know, I never started a scalable business, so Vitalize is a business, I would say it, it has been successful to date, knock on wood. Um, we're actually about to launch another component of Vitalize, it will be an angel community that I think is going to be super innovative. And so, I'm still a builder by nature, this will be the third of venture type business that I have started and so it's not too dissimilar except it's more of a services business that we're starting now the new community we're making it completely tech enabled it's it's very very low touch service everything is async everything is automated and so I do think venture is moving in that direction Um, and we want to stay abreast of those um, those trends as we go
0: and did you unearth that opportunity? Was it LPs who were trying to co-invest alongside and said we'd really love this type of angel community to to sort of really um, centralize our efforts, or, or how did you kind of I guess get to that decision or that that sort of opportunity?
1: Well, from running Irish Angels, then Vitalize, and Tandem for a number of years, and so I, you know, that the Irish Angels portion of my journey ended last month. There is magic in having an angel network tied to a venture fund. And beyond that, there are trends that really support this. I personally believe that community and marketing are the new platform. What do I mean by that? Platform was a hot topic years ago, and that's all about helping the portfolio companies. So now I think that venture funds, in order to stay cutting edge, are going to have to figure out how do we really leverage marketing content and community to generate deal flow, to help our companies, to be one of the top brands out there. And so we're moving in this direction, you see communities popping up, there's AngelList, Hustle Fund just launched something, Harlem Capital launched something, there's all sorts of things coming. Ours is actually really different. I'm personally passionate and our team is personally passionate about helping underrepresented people write checks. And the the current accredited investor definitions don't allow anybody who makes under $200,000 a year to invest. And I just don't think that's right. I think there's a ton of people who make probably seventy-five dollars up to $200,000 a year who are educated, who can add value, who, who have a lot to gain and give to this asset class. So what we've done is we figured out how do we do this. Well, we, we we're partnering with a crowdfunding site and we're letting both accredited and non-accredited investors invest as low as $1,000 into these companies. We expect to have thousands of angels on this community once it is at a point where um, we'll have to decide how big can this get. But it's a, it's a low cost to join. It's about 20% of the price of comparable programs. And we did that because we want to make this accessible. And um, we are vetting the companies that come in the door. We see so many now for future work and learning where um, just in the last two weeks, I have a list of 10 where I love the founders and I'm like, we, you know, this is a little early for our fund, but here's this community and it works via crowdfunding. And we're gonna ask you to write uh, or to sign a side letter for Super Parada, right? So that our fund can invest in the next round if, if the fund wants to. And they're all jazzed about it. And I'm like, wow, the founders really want this. There's high demand. And then we have a wait list of already 300 people from one tweet on, um, on this angel community. So as we've gotten the interest levels we just see something here, and other venture capitalists would probably think I'm crazy because we don't we don't take a fear or carry on this. We do this for a number of reasons. One is just impact, and I think it's time to democratize venture and give more people access. And the second reason is you know the fund should benefit from this. I believe we're good pickers when we invest in um, let's say twenty companies out of the community per year. It is likely that three or four of them are going to be rocket ships, and the fund will have first right coming out of that um, next round. So we'll see how this works, but early indications are that this is something that the market supports right now.
0: If people are interested in this initiative, you know where can they go to find out? I know you mentioned you have a, you have a waiting list already through Twitter, but if people want to learn more, where can they go?
1: They can DM me on Twitter, um, at GaleForceVC and I will make sure to get them the information. And we'll also publicly announce this. Um, we sh- it should be launching in the next week or so. So hopefully we have some good stuff coming out on that very soon.
0: You, you mentioned your Twitter and you do something that is personally, I think really unique and really cool. You, you have an open office hours, you know, periodically, almost very kind of frequently. What was your motivation behind behind doing that? I think it's so interesting that you open up your your calendly basically for founders that, that want to talk shop. I'm just curious about the genesis of that.
1: Well, it's um, I'm one of those people who has had a problem learning how to say no but um, as I would tell a founder we invested in, you have to say no. At this point, I, I get dozens of requests a day. And I wish I truly wish I could help every founder, but I can't. And so it was important to me to figure out how do I do a one to many solution. So Brad Feld talks about this. And he's, I think, one of the smartest species out there. So how can you be smarter about using your time? And that means I had to figure out one to many solutions. Um, I spend more time on Twitter to share I kind of quote, build in public or share my thoughts a little bit more publicly than I used to as a way to give back. And then for folks that want to sign up for an angel investing roundtable, a VC roundtable, or a founders roundtable, I do all of those once a month. Um, because it's it's still, you know, it's great to meet people and create those connections. I still talk with some folks that have met through those. And I think I think it's important both for me to develop my network and then also to give back and give folks a forum to learn from not just me, but from the group.
0: Was this something that, came from COVID or was it something you were doing already before COVID even started?
1: I started this, oh, it's probably been a year and a half. It's, it probably maps pretty closely to COVID. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, was it's not sort doing of a... it in person in the, in the past. Got it. Yeah.
0: I mean, it. it, it it's an interesting point too, right? I mean, I mean, COVID really democratized capital, democratized access to thought leaders such as yourself. And it also sort of plays into a lot of the... You know, categories that you yourself are directly investing into. You know, I think are there are there any kind of other major sort of sea changes that you you, you see coming out of COVID? I know we've discussed a few already, so so totally understand if we've covered most. But I'm just curious if any other major sort of changes or themes that you're really interested in coming out of COVID?
1: We've got to figure out in person, like 100% in person. I don't think many companies are going to do that. I think it's going to be a fight between hybrid and fully remote. And you already start to kind of see that. If some people are coming into the office sometimes and others are, are completely remote, is that fair? And how do you deal with that? I, I personally believe we're gonna see lots of variation along that spectrum. And it's gonna depend on what the company does and where people already naturally want to live irrespective of, of where they have to live or where they wanna live. And then can we create solutions around that where there's a place for people to go if they want to. Um, But you already see solutions for, you know, some people are are in um, in a conference room together, things like the owl camera looking at everybody while others are at home. It's solutions like that for engagement and for, you know, making sure benefits are fair and making sure that do you have to be in an office to get promoted? That's historically how it's been. The data this supports that, but are there ways to make sure that everyone has a fair shake moving forward if they are in a hybrid situation and they're not coming into an office? So these are all things that I think are going to create lots of new business models in, in this space. And then the other is, it's really on, it's on hiring and, um, and retention, engagement. It's, it's companies' interactions with the employees. From before they join the company, during you know the, even the offboarding process, we're seeing lots of new business models come up here, and I think that firms are going to have to get more transparent in terms of how do they comp, how do they hire, what's the opportunities at the companies. It's just so easy now for people to change jobs, so all of the hiring models are going to rapidly adjust to this. So those are two areas that we see a lot of change coming.
0: And you mentioned, you know content and, and community being increasingly important for venture capital funds do you do you sort of echo those statements as it applies to kind of regular corporate America you know corporations today do you expect more of them to be churning out more content and trying to build a, a community around their brand or a community within their workforce is that is that something that you think you know will will sort of perpetuate as as you know time goes on
1: yeah. I mean, community is, it's a hot topic and it's important. The office used to create opportunities to build community, but now that that's not going to be the case. People are talking about, well, the office is going to be for fun social gatherings or there's no office and we're meeting quarterly at a fun location to, you know, create those relationships. So the idea of community changes, but companies have to be more, more intentional about it now. And I actually like companies that are uh, startups that are trying to figure this out, because I believe that um, especially big companies, or companies that are rapidly growing, and it's kind of and they're in constant flux, are going to need a provider for building community, both within within their organization, and then potentially across organizations as well
0: when you say provider does that mean sort of infrastructure if I want to start sort of a, a mm-hmm. newsletter or a podcast you mean sort of the infrastructure tools to get that off the ground
1: yeah a platform to to drive a uh, community for companies like I talked to a company yesterday and um, I was hoping this is where they were going they didn't they didn't Quite say it this way, so that uh, this one thing that I'm looking for is who wants to own that because it's something that every company is going to have to figure out, and it's hard. It's hard to figure out the the technology behind it.
0: I'd love to, I, I and mean, I love that perspective. I, I think in one area that I'm really interested in is is enterprise podcasting, and there's still so much of the Fortune 500 that hasn't adopted that as a method of recruitment, of brand building, of again driving community, and having the technical know-how uh, is something that, that, that is challenging for them. I got to say, starting my own, maybe they should just, I'll take a consulting (laughs) fee. If any, you know, if Pfizer or any of the big Chicago Walgreens, they want to pay me to help happy to do that. But I'm curious in our remaining time, you know, we've talked about remote work, but you know, you guys are based in Chicago. I know, I believe you have offices now in San Fran, so you're definitely nationally focused, but I'd love to hear about your perspective on how the Chicago startup community has progressed over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, lots of movement. Lots more funds here, lots more startups. You have startups that are raising bigger rounds. So you've got ShipBob and SpotHero and a number of others. Simple Mills is one on the non-tech side that are doing really big things here, and that's important. As that happens, you have employees who are able to make money from um, exit events and then start their own. So that's really what happens in communities like a San Francisco, and New York, and L.A. All those exits will then go and kind of trickle down. And we are seeing that. I think that it's a really interesting time to be in Chicago because we'll con- continue to see things speed up here. Um, so... I'm I'm excited that we have exposure to this up and coming market.
0: Do you think there's a benefit maybe of building a future of work startup here in Chicago? I, I think we have the most diverse kind of set of corporations based here. Do you see a long-term strategic benefit to starting that company here?
1: Yeah, I think Chicago is a great place to start a company um, in terms of cost of living and just access to Fortune 500. If you're a B2B enterprise startup, you should definitely think about being here. You know, and the, Minneapolis is another sleeper. Atlanta is another one. Like these have lots and lots of big corporate. So depending on what your focus is, like absolutely considering one of those com- one of those cities is really smart.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, ed tech seems like it's a little bit more ubiquitous. And, you know, Boston seems like that'd be a great place to start, especially higher education one. But, yeah, I think that, that, that's an interesting perspective on future work as it relates to Chicago. I'm curious about you're involved with Chicago Blend. I'd love to hear a little bit about your involvement with that organization and, 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 you know, what they're really working towards.
1: Yeah, yeah. So Lindsay Knight from Chicago Ventures started this about two and a half years ago pulled together a group of VCs and the, the goal is to increase diversity in Chicago startups and VC. Um, we've done things like create a, a blend list. These are individuals who have underrepresented backgrounds that founders can then tap to see if they'll sit on boards and in an independent seat. We've um, created partnerships with diverse hiring platforms because we hear from people, it's, it's a pipeline problem. No, it's not. But Here's your resources. We, we're all about hire and wire how do we get more underrepresented founders, money? How do we get them in leadership seats? How do we get them in board seats? Um, how do we get more underrepresented folks in VC check writing positions? So those are the things that Joey Mac is now the executive executive director of blend and the board and an awesome new advisory board are really focused on. So I expect to see some big things coming out of the organization in the next couple of years.
0: What's the process of people listening if somebody wants to get involved or join the organization? Do you know what the process is for them to sort of sign up and get more involved?
1: Yeah, go to the chicagoblend.org website, and then there'll be a way to sign up there for more information.
0: And you've mentioned a couple of times on the show, you know, providing democratizing access to capital to underrepresented founders. When in your career did you realize this was going to be an issue that was truly near and dear to you that you wanted to champion and allocate, you know, so much of your time towards? When did that sort of, you know, decision, you know, for you really crystallize?
1: I don't, I don't know. I guess it's always, it's always been, been there. I mean, there have been times since I started Irish Angels nine years ago where I walked into a room with um, another investor and they're expecting there to be a guy behind me because they thought that, you know, Gail was a guy's name. And oh my gosh, you're a woman. And so that's the kind of stuff has happened to me so often, Um, I do think women and underrepresented minorities are treated differently. I've seen it, I've experienced it, I think it's really unfortunate. And I'm sitting in a position of privilege. And I I used to not say anything, because you can kind of get raked over the coals for saying that this stuff is not is not where, where it should be, but especially in the last few years, I've decided, you know, I have to, I have to do this. I have to do what I can to make an impact here. And I know a lot of my peers are out there doing the same thing. And if enough of us make an impact, then there will be change faster. So that's kind of how how I view it. I'm not doing a ton. I'm doing what I can. And I think the big shift for me is I'm talking about it now. And I I, I understand that some people are going to um, typecast me or whatever. And like I just I don't care. Then they're not the right fit for me in terms of being a co-investor or an LP in in our fund.
0: No, I think it's it's so admirable, and you know, we'll include all the links and and resources in the show notes, and you know, definitely give it as much of a call out as possible. We'll end with you know, you mentioned Brad Feld, but any other thought leaders or or VCs or you know experts that you look up you look up to in the industry, or you try to really follow and learn from.
1: Yeah. We'll start with peers, um, these are other early stage investors who I think are so inspiring, um, it's Matt Conwell from Rare Breed and Lolita Taub from Community Fund, Elizabeth Ian and Eric Bond from Hustle Fund, um, the gals at, so it's Jen and, Mar- and Marin at um, January BC these are all like really fabulous folks who are putting great content out they are creating communities that are inclusive they're really making difference um, there are more that i did not mention by the way that are not coming to mind but um in terms of like my longstanding go-to it's always brad feld what does brad think about this topic i think he really thinks about this in a perspective that's fair to both the founder and the investor which is awesome and, and just mechanically speaking. A lot of his content is is awesome and then you know there there's one other that i will mention and she's not as much putting content out there but i i have had the the great um fortune to work directly with kate mitchell from scale vp she is um one of the co-founders there and just brilliant so to hear how she thought about building that fund and what she's done in her career has been um, really inspiring for me personally
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And fun fact about Brad Feld, he will answer basically any email you send him, uh, (laughs) which I emailed him and he responded. And I was like, okay, I think you get a lot of these. (laughs) Thanks. But that's great. Gail, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. We really appreciate it. And I can't wait to do this again.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Matt.
0: If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early-stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy, designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please
1: tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.